I, uh, everyone, you are listening to Gather. You're listening to Gather. Together. Gather. This is Amy Salamanis, and this is Gather with Minerva's Books and Ideas, where we'll explore the lives of books and the ideas they ignite and illuminate. Hello and welcome to part two of our first episode, Booksellers and Storytellers. Among many of my aspirations, I would like to become a writer. Therefore, I would feel very privileged to attain some part-time work surrounded by beloved books. I find bookshops very special, even enchanting at times, and believe that books are sacred and deserving of respect. I have not had a lot of experience in the workforce, but I hope you will consider my application for any work I could assist you with in the wonderful realm of words. What a tripper. Well, my friends, that was a letter that I wrote when I was 16 and sent to bookshops around Melbourne. I was told to stay in school, but I can report that in my 20s I found myself working at the fabulous Readings in Melbourne, the iconic indie bookshop led by Mark Rubo. I even had a few things published. So I checked in with a lovely old colleague, Chris Gordon, about how they were going in lockdown there. And I also asked how she thought Cole would have responded to COVID. Oh, I think he would have done exactly the same thing, don't you? I think he's in some ways another sort of Mark Rubo in a way. He would have been, uh, I mean, not politically bent in that way, but certainly in passion for the written word and for the community. I think he definitely would have been on some bike with a flag at the back and, you know, (laughs) knocking on people's doors. We've had lots of staff doing that during this time. And, uh, I mean, I don't know what it would feel like to have you know, the owner of readings knocking on your door on a Saturday night. But but I imagine pretty good, actually. Barker said that he'd been offered wine and tapas, <laughs> been given marmalade by customers to take home. <laughs> Book people are the best people. In part one of this episode, we travelled to the Victorian goldfields and to marvellous Melbourne in the 19th century. Our book seeds were Cole's funny picture book and works inspired by Cole and his life. In part two, we look to 20th and 21st century booksellers in Ballarat and hear from Ballarat's resident music archivist, Rex Hardware. What we're hearing now is the last live gig he recorded at the Ballarat Mechanics Institute this February, the Carlo Onzo Trio. We'll also have the first of our regular indie book people features, and this will be a special one with Ballarat's newest bookseller, Christine Crawshaw, who has created a new bookish wonderland in the old Minerva space after we moved online. Christine is a costumier, making costumes for musicians like Adam Simmons, and a lover of the recycled and reimagined. We'll also enjoy our very first creative piece for the segment, Things Found in Books, from Ballarat storyteller extraordinaire Erin McCuskey, creator of the transmedia project Luxville and her fabulous Luxville Tales. Our book seeds here are somewhat tangential, but are the little teeny stickers of sorts that you might find in the inner front cover of an old book. I've seen ones with wonderful fonts and imagery, and they always add something extra for me, part of the journey the book has been on, and a hint at the bookseller's hands it's passed through. Benjamin L. Clark, aka the Exile Bibliophile, gathers bookbinders, perhaps more associated with tickets, and booksellers with labels, together under the term book trade labels. He's also working on a field guide to these delicious bookish ephemera, and also points towards a site called Bibliophemera if you want to check this out. Clark states that Book trade labels were used by booksellers and bookbinders and can be a wealth of history and fun. Labels, historically, were available from commercial label printers. However, some specially made labels could set a bookseller apart from others nearby. We love the books that have come to us at Minerva's Books with such local markings, conjuring bookshops and publishers of the past. 
Ballarat ones include the names Berry Anderson, Summer Scales, Bill's Book Bar and Ewan's. Where have you been all the day, my boy Tommy? What kept you so long away, my boy Tommy? To stay so long I did not mean, but mother, I've to Ewan's been. And there's a lot of things I've seen, that's what delayed your Tommy. There were, oh, such pianos and organs displayed, fancy goods, toys and artware, the best in the trade. Of choice stationery there was tons on hand, and all the new music that one could demand. While for standard or new books relating the doings of the great and the good, there's a grand stock at Ewan's. Ewan's was a bookshop that lived on Sturt Street, just a few shops down from where we were, on the other side of the Mechanics Institute. There are photos in the Institute's collection of this part of the street decorated for the 1938 Floral Festival, and the bookshop covered in what I imagine were sunflowers. For a past heritage project I worked on, I got to go down in the basement of what used to be Ewan's, now it's a bike shop, and was given a little souvenir, an old bottle of penguin drawing ink. And imagine my delight when I learnt that a friend Rex had worked there as a teenager, in its days before it became an Angus and Robertson. We'll chat to Rex here. You'll also hear his 55-year-old cockatoo, Jacko. Cockatoo? Is cockatoo? Cockatoo. Self-accrested. <laughs> so the cockatoo thinks Rex is his long-lost um, cockatoo compadre, Richard. <laughs> so apparently he calls to him. Oh, he's looking at me through the window. Isn't that great, that window, the way he can look in at us? He's got the big side eye happening. (laughs) How does he call for you? Richard! He says Richard. I'm Rex Hardware and I'm an archivist and a music producer uh, here in Ballarat. And part of my passion is uh, dealing with uh, archived audio recordings. I've spent most of my adult life recording music and you know documenting the music scene taking photos producing videos teaching young people how to do audio and video and promotion and that kind of thing i worked at ewan's 111 sturt street ballarat from 1983 to 1989. i reckon i went in there as a um, year nine student saying uh, i need to do some sort of work experience i'd really like to work in a bookshop can i do it so i did it and uh, it was a week and I had to, it was nine in the morning till five in the afternoon, all week. And you got paid five dollars a day or something. And uh, at the end of it, when they were saying thank you, goodbye for the last time, the manager came over and said, now if you're interested in a job here, we want you part time. I was oh my, didn't even have to apply for a job. And I got this great job uh, at um, the bookshop. It was a two uh, two story Affair. So there was the ground floor and there was the uh, upper floor. Uh, the ground floor, as you walked in, had a counter on the left, obviously, that you know, with the cash register. And as you walked in, it was general non-fiction on the left, uh, fiction on the right. And at the rear of um, the ground floor, there was a huge stationary section. Upstairs, uh, in the middle of the store, you'd go up and there was a, you know, remained it or bargain book segment. Every corner you went around in Ewan's, you would find something from the 1940s or 50s or 60s. Not necessarily from the 20s or 30s, that stuff was all gone. But there was lots of stuff that remained from the 1950s and 60s. Even down in the stationery section, I would look and there'd be stuff there that would be dated from um, the late 70s, bits of stationery. 
Um, they ran a tight ship. Dusting, you know, and wiping was part of your, your job that you had to do, whether you were on a Friday night or whether the full-time staff did it. And it was a fantastic place to work. What was the kind of cultural life of Ballarat like? Bookshops were still a thing. There were still a number of bookshops in Ballarat. They were really well stocked. Books were still a thing. And Ewan's, Ewan's was still one of the preeminent retailers in Ballarat of books. People knew they could come in, order a book, uh, and it would come in. So there were a lot of the, the cheaper remainder bookshops that uh, were popping up in Ballarat in the mid-1980s, they had no capacity to order you a book. Mm-hmm. All they had was the remainder stock that they'd get from the warehouse, you know, whatever franchise they were, and you, they didn't order books. So a really strong amount of the, uh, the sales came from people um, not only knowing we were well-stocked, but also being able to order books. Um, the big competitor, I've just remembered, were Ballarat Books in Armstrong Street. So they had the stranglehold on textbooks uh, and school books. But for some reason, I think there was a bit of a hangover then where you could order your school books from Ewan's. Um, and we definitely had some people who would come in and do that. The great thing about the management around that time was that they made sure that the young staff, even if they didn't read these books, were aware of what was popular and what we were going to get asked for and where it was in the store. Or the fact that, you know, um, the latest Bryce Courtney book was uh, out of print and it was going to be three months before the printing presses could go and they could have it back in. We also had a very early computer-based terminal where you could type in. uh, And I don't know how that worked. I think um, there were large format floppy disks that were sent up uh, with ISBN numbers that you could mm, search through. It certainly wasn't online because the internet was yet to be, but there was definitely a database um, that, that we could search. We also had the ability to ring uh, one of about 12 publishers and inquire on the phone for a customer about the book that they wanted and its availability. It was my job on a Saturday morning to deliver the books next door to the reading room at the Ballarat Mechanics Institute. And I would go in there and just with a box, have a quick chat, have a look around. All the paint was peeling. There was a very strong smell of dampness and it was basically a crumbling ruin. There was also a really nice counter in the centre of the reading room that had a bit of a glass uh, see-through edge around it. And in, you'd look through that glass and then you'd look through another big container and there was one of the original Withers History of Ballarats, you know, up in that. can always remember that ever since I've wanted a copy of uh, Withers History of Ballarat. Well, I really love reading and I really love books. And there was a, uh, a book called the Paul Hamlin Children's Encyclopedia uh, that I've recently discovered in my mother's collection. Mm-hmm. And I'd basically read every page of it by the time I was about 10 or 11 years old. And it was a great source of science and technology and nature and space. And there were a lot of those books that Ewan's had on sale. So I remember going in before I worked there uh, and buying on special, buying some of these books and begging my mother to buy them. So when I started working there, um, not only was it great that you were just in a bookshop for three or four hours... Um, you know, on a Friday and a Saturday night, and, you, you know, they paid you. But they gave staff 25% discount. 
So I found myself saving and spending a lot of my wages uh, on their books. Uh, the other place, obviously, I went to was Brash Sutton's, Brashes in the Bridge Mall, buying a lot of cassettes and buying a lot of vinyl. But a lot of my income was taken up here yeah, with buying the books that I, that I sold. I was a reader and I was really interested and I think they saw that and that's why they were keen to foster my knowledge and, and you know, keep me working there. So, yeah, a, a great staff. I'm pretty sure there was only one other male it was all female staff. Uh, no, sorry. There was one assistant manager who worked in the office who did mainly accounts, and there was another young guy. But the whole time I worked there, there was probably nine or ten women who, who worked there. So it was very predominantly female staff. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you talked about it a bit with the Mechanics Institute, but what was that strip kind of on Sturt Street like at that time? There was Ewan's, there was the Mechanics Institute, and once again, the Mechanics Institute had a library, but it was very much for very old people, and when they had their doors open, the smell of the 1950s, uh, or 1850s as the case may be, would emanate throughout Sturt Street. You'd then go up and there was a little tiny bakery. But one of the, well, the jewel in the crown was the Mechanics Institute. But one of the more exciting things about that little block uh, just underneath the Commonwealth Bank was Unicorn Lane. And Unicorn Lane had uh, a little cafe uh, and another really groovy kind of restaurant called Cafe Soiree. And it also had a clothing store called The Sacred Cow. And my friend Anna worked there part-time. And after school, we could go there to the clothing shop that she was, just like me, she was working, you know, after school. But we could go there and drink Moselle after school and smoke cigarettes. So a really cute little block right there between Angus and Robertson and the Commonwealth Bank. So I managed to be there for like two or three years when it was still Ewan's, Angus and Robertson. And I've got a couple of nice photos of the maroon store with yellow lettering. So Josiah Ewan's... Um, Born in England in 1841, he came out as a 20-year-old and established in Ballarat his first bookshop in 1861. And once again, this is all hearing about the gold discoveries in Ballarat, which is why he, you know, packed up a dray and put a whole lot of books uh, in the back. In the early days, Ewans was associated with the old Theatre Royal Building in Sturt Street, but business uh, prospered, and in 1889, he bought the premises of the Australian and European Bank at 111 Sturt Street, uh, the building was transformed into a modern and attractive bookshop. Word spread throughout the Western District and throughout the country that Ewan's was a particularly well-known uh, bookshop for its educational department, and it built up very substantial sales in that field. Liberal discount for cash, it says on this old document. <laughs> uh, so Josiah Ewan's had three sons during the 1870s, Alfred, Herbert and Jim, uh, who was known as Arthur for some reason, all of these three sons worked in the bookshop. Uh, a well-known story of the time was that Josiah promised £100 to the first son to marry and have a son. <laughs> the three sons uh, managed the business from about 1906 when their father went into semi-retirement. With Rex's interest in archives, he was given an old document with some of the history which he was reading from there. And there's also some memories from employee Don, who started as a boy at Ewan's in 1918 and worked there for 33 years. He notes that when Mr Josiah Ewan's and his wife plus two daughters died, I was coffin bearer. They lived opposite the St John of God Hospital and the house was called Linden. 
Note, listeners, that when I googled Linden House Ballarat, I found a 2014 article about a man transporting drugs in an umbrella. Ah, Ballarat. I was also excited to hear in these memories that it was Don that was responsible for the sunflowers in the floral festival decorations, and that his weren't made out of paper, but of plywood. He says, Other shops used crepe paper waxed flowers which faded, but my wooden decorations lasted for years. He also says that he supervised the window and inside decorations for the festival with dried bracken fern and red-hot pokers made out of crepe paper and skyrocket sticks plus other flowers arranged in large drain pipes in the centre of display tables. Sounds pretty wonderful. Shows how bookshops have always played a creative part in city life and civic pride. The little tune we heard before about Ewan's, the boy Tommy hanging out in Ewan's and finding all the fabulous stock. That was also from those documents that Rex had and comes from a book of verse called Ballarat Chimes, published in 1909 by Georgina Tickner, who went by the pen name of Mona Marie. Who was she, I wonder? Something to chase up later. There wasn't a uniform, though. I was just told to wear blue trousers and a white shirt or something uh, in 1983 and 1984. But by the time Angus and Robertson had taken over in 1985, I had to wear these special blue slacks and uh, a special um, shirt with markings on it and a tartan tie. So it was clearly it was the Robertson tartan and the, the little tie pin that you, you pinned to your shirt so it would stay in place that said Angus and Robertson. I've still got that. I've also got a reference... Rex Harbour has been employed on a casual basis with our store for three years. This is, what, 1987? I have a very pleasing personality. I am courteous and well-mannered to customers and staff. My duties involved me in all areas of the shop. My duties included unpacking and pricing of stock, stock-taking, general sales and cash register work, display and cleaning of stock, invoicing and dispatch, counting money and night-safe duties. Uh, she'd have no hesitation in recommending me to any prospective employer, and I've proven to be an excellent employee. There we go. So soon we'll move up Sturt Street, underneath the statue of Minerva, goddess of wisdom, and the Grand Mechanics Institute doors to 121 Sturt Street, which has seen its share of bookish action, even back in its early days as a fruit shop, next to the, at times, bustling Institute Library and Cinema. Since 2000, it's been a bookshop, Alex Zeti's Pot of Gold Books and Collectibles, who I actually chatted to for a project back in 2013, so you'll hear a bit from him. Minerva's Books, 2016 to 2020, and now the newest kid on the block, Sothis Books and Sartorial. So before we hear from these Ballarat book folks, we'll take a creative interlude into our segment, Things Found in Books, and Erin McCuskey's story, which mixes fact and fiction, as is her way. For me, stories float between hearts and float between minds and are carried on the air and through the earth by feelings. And so mixing fact and fiction for me enables me to to tell stories that are partially true and partially untrue, but together they create their their own truth, their own way of taking us forward as as a people. Hello, I'm Erin McCuskey. I'm the creative director of Yum Studio. My main 
emotional feeling outlet, art outlet, is filmmaking. And I love to use overlays, use heritage and history and use fact and fiction to layer those images with real and imagined feelings. So could you talk a bit about Luxville as an example of your beautiful storytelling? What is Luxville? Luxville is the story of a large regional town. It's based on Ballarat. It's not Ballarat, but some of the facts that I use throughout Luxville are from Ballarat, and some of the fictions are as well. <laughs> There's, um, it's actually enabled me to, for people to share with me little stories that don't fit anywhere else. They are not complete stories. They are, they they feel like they're, um, you know, like a little heartbeat of a story. So where do they, where do the, where do all those little heartbeats and moments of stories go? I don't know. So and because I collect things like that, I wanted to be able to put them somewhere. So I put them into a story. And Luxville is the tale of an artist's revolution in this town. And this town is a town that has forgotten who it is, has forgotten what hope is, has forgotten what joy is, has forgotten to challenge and to ask questions and has, at the basis, forgotten to be curious. So during my time in the bookshop over the last few years, I've been collecting interesting things that I've found in books. And I showed this collection of things to Erin and she was drawn to some beautiful silk-woven bookmarks. I've, I love fairy tales and like to, you know, write fairy tales into Luxville as well. But finding that one and then reading the little homily that, that it had, it was all homilies about... Um, you know, I miss you, I long for you, can't wait for us to meet again. And it made me think about the the lives of books and that we we give them so much because they give us so much. But there are some books you can't part with and there are some which, some which you can't wait to get rid of. And I think that's just like people, isn't it? So the, so the bookmarks were a, were a beautiful way of telling the book how much it was loved but the book also telling the reader how much it was loved being read so yeah it it um they immediately captured my attention things found in books you'll hear a new intimacy and richness things found in books i wish i could find a good book From Blue to Turquoise For Amy The first was deep blue-black with cream text. The second was thick black linen with embossed silver text. Both so incredibly fabulous she couldn't decide which one. She closed her eyes and reached over, knowing that either would do. She gathered a book to her chest, sighing with happiness as she opened her eyes. She had grabbed the black linen book with embossed silver title. She had secretly wanted that one and wondered if her fingers had a sneaky exploring before the grab. Though she suspected that if she had grabbed the other one, she would also have secretly wanted that. Amy was glad that she never had indecision when it came to books. 
they would all do. She found books announced themselves. They came forward to her. She did not need to be polite nor feign attraction. They always found their way to her. When she did make decisions, it caused trouble. Deciding to go for a walk was a harbinger for downpours. Deciding what to order meant that she often wanted her friends' meals and deciding what to wear took too long. So Amy made her final decision. She decided she would stop making decisions. Well, as much as was possible. She decided instead that the things that floated towards her were yes, and those that floated away from her were no. She bought a raincoat, asked her friends to order for her, and used her hands instead of her eyes to choose an outfit for the day. She didn't decide to open a bookshop. It was decided for her. One day, while immersed in the shelves of the bookshop Blue Books of Luxville, the owner approached, offering her the shop keys. He'd had enough of losing money and she was his best customer and he wondered if she might like it. Knock yourself out, he said. I did, completely. The shop had decided. Eventually she changed the name to Turquoise Books of Luxville. Her eyes were turquoise, so really they had decided. And while the bookshop was never a problem, despite some minor decisions, the books were. Not because the books were in her bookshop, but because they felt like her friends and friends sometimes leave. Amy loved to travel, but she couldn't decide where, so she just went. The villages that surrounded Luxville were full of fun and delight and sometimes books. If you never make a decision, she figured, you never get lost. So it was always an adventure. She felt forced, though, to make a big decision recently, travel to Dublin. She waited for a problem to arise from her decision. The next day, a pandemic crept crept across the Luxville Tribune. So she recommitted to no more decisions. Well, this time her decisions created international trouble. Amy waited to hear if travel might float towards her or float away this time. She had decided on Dublin because the library there had a corner and in that corner was a shelf and on that shelf was a friend who had left her to go and live in Dublin. The book was a faded red hardback first edition that called to her like a lonely aunt a sound just out of reach, like tears that sting when your heart hurts. That corner seemed very inviting, and Amy wanted to see if her lonely aunt was being loved enough and how she was settling in. At Turquoise Books, when Amy wrapped her friends for sale, she added a beautiful bookmark inside the really special ones. The bookmarks were silk, woven with short poems of love and forget-me-nots, with short coloured tassels. Amy always had a good supply because they were often sent back by the new owners who thought them rare treasures forgotten. Amy had secreted a bookmark with her lonely aunt, however it had not yet been returned by the Dublin librarians. Amy wondered if her beautiful book had been greeted. Were her leaves stretched open? Was she, was she rested? and maybe even read, 
That's why Amy made her rare decision, this time, to visit her lonely aunt to know if she was happy. It was the biggest decision Amy had made in years. She had purchased, purchased the ticket, booked her travel and located accommodations. Amy had never left Luxville for more than a few nights, ever. And what Amy did not need was a pandemic. But that's what happens when she makes decisions. The travel agent had been kind. Oh, most people have cancelled, she said, but I don't mind if you postpone or cancel, it's all the same to me. What would you like to do? Amy's renewed decision to not make decisions was sorely tested by this question. She postponed. It seemed more like a non-decision than did cancelling, which seemed so definite. Not making decisions for so long had allowed Amy to understand that fate is neither good nor bad. It simply is. And the lonely aunt would happily wait with her embroidered bookmark inside until Amy arrived on the day that floated towards her. I think that's what the message is. I think if we can find joy, then we are capable of anything as a people. I love that. <laughs> that's so good. Um, I was thinking about Luxville and how you have the different characters, the mayor and the artist and such, and um, I think you're going to have me as the bookseller, you know, the local bookshop, before I even had a bookshop. I, how amazing is that? But that, see, that to me just felt like I knew you were going to do that. And your love of books, what the hell else were you going to do? You know, <laughs> So to actually have written that into, the, into Luxville and then, you know, what was it? A few years later, you owned a bookshop. It was kind of, it was kind of inevitable anyway. I was just writing the Amy bookshop wave. Thanks so much, Erin, for your beautiful work across film, photography, writing, and for creating that tale, weaving fact and fiction for our first Things Found in Books segment. So now we jump back in time to 2013 and go into the bookshop when it was Alex's pot of gold, books and collectibles. Just a note that it kind of sounds like we're in an aquarium. As far as I remember, there were no fish in the store. Make of it what you will. You'll also hear the little bell that rings when the door opens. I think it's still there. My name is Alex. I got a bookshop and I sell books. I buy and sell books. And I read them in between time when I got time. <laughs> I've been here for 12 years. <laughs> Have you seen lots of changes in people's reading habits? It is changes. It's like a, books like fashion. What's popping up? Right now, it's, it's very interesting. It's a, I think they I sell a lot of comics, believe it or not. I got kids' books, I got uh, old, I got fishing, I got uh, animals, I got everything under the sun. Poetry, everything. I haven't got a jewel word here. That's still my favourite. <laughs> I'll show you that how many I got. I got French. Yeah, I do look at the pictures like I went, oh, what a kid. That's a nice addition. Yeah. Maybe you'll get a French reader come in one day. Yeah, that's a five weeks in a balloon. See, I can tell by the pictures. You can't read it, but you know it. Get all the comics there. Yeah, I've got plenty of comics. I haven't got much sheet music, 
Back then we had no idea, but in 2016 Alex sold the shop to us and we transformed it into Minerva's. And in 2020 we passed the space on to Christine to create her new business. Where Alex was showing me the Jules Verne in the back corner of the shop, Christine now has the kids section and a magic window. Okay, we're looking at an assortment of beautiful old books, little tiny statue things. There are three dragons hidden in there, one hippopotamus made of pewter. There are things from my childhood. There's a beautiful old vintage measuring tape that was my great aunt's turling around. There's even um, a snake skin in there that's a shredded snake skin. That wouldn't hurt an animal. Oh, and so you put the emu as well. Yes, emu's <laughs> popping up. From, he's moved from the door to the corner. Oh, beautiful. I love it so much. And there's lots of feathers and little things, and that'll get creepier as Halloween comes okay. closer, and then it'll things. change to Christmas. And yeah, what do you think, Julian? Vastly, vastly improved. <laughs> <laughs> vastly different. So Sothis Books and Sartorial will be a little tiny wonderland of cram-packed fun. Things to find, literally there will be things to find in the magic window out in the back corner. Um, great little space for kids and grown-ups alike. More books, everyone needs more books and more shoes. <laughs> I am Christine Croshaw. I'm creative. <laughs> I love Ballarat. I adore Ballarat and our history and I'm glad to be looking after part of that too in my bookshop. So yeah, tell me your vision for the shop. So the sartorial bit will be, uh, hopefully my wardrobes will be emptying out. <laughs> I have an awful lot of them. I'm not kidding, like 13 wardrobes. I claim my children's wardrobes. There are <laughs> shoes packed in bookshelves to the ceiling in my front room. Um, and I think it's about time I got rid of some of that. <laughs> so I've got... All of my stuff, I've got friends with things to give into the shop and we can sell them. And then I'm going to have these little sections in the glass display cases where people can have their wares for sale. I've got some jewellers and some arts and crafts people. We're going to have some little crafty things on the walls, lots of paper um, artwork because Ballarat is the city of craft and folk art so we can really go to town with that now. And hopefully we'll sell some books and meet some great people. Yeah, beautiful. Oh, I can't wait. So we've got one of Christine's lovely children here as well, Patrick, who can, I'm sure, attest to the full house of, <laughs> of goodies. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, how's this for you, Mum, getting the bookshop going? Um, it's quite amazing, seeing as all, yeah, all of her life she really didn't get to do much because of, well, she had kids, <laughs> to put it bluntly. Yeah, it's just really happy because she finally gets to do something that oh, she's always so wanted nice. to. Aww. And it's did you so imagine it would be a bookshop? Um, well, yeah, kind of. It's sort of mixture between bookshop and mum's house. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's such a good way to put it for everyone that um, knows you and your warmth <laughs> yeah, exactly. and unique style. So it's like 
come to a bookshop slash Christine's house. Mm-hmm. If I had a dinner table, it would just be home. <laughs> Ooh, now there's an idea. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> bookshop dinner. Ooh, that's a good Notice the um, Reader's Book Club. I've got it's a trying to wear it. <laughs> a rainbow, yeah. <laughs> There's not quite enough um, indigo and violet ones, but I'll work oh, on that. So cool. I'm on a hunt now. So, had you heard of Cole's book, yes. Arcade Patrick? Um, not before now, but it's quite an interesting story. Yes. Yeah, he's such a lovely guy. You know, wanted the whole no borders and one language and for the whole world. Yeah, right to the roof. And just everything else that he had crammed in there. Music and stationery and these great fountain pens that didn't leak and all that, all that sort of stuff. Oh, I love one of those. Aren't they just beautiful? So, yeah, you can, you'll be making your own little... Ballarat Book Arcade. Oh, I love that. I'd love a fernery. There are definitely some plants coming to live here, definitely. So I'd love that. So booksellers are carrying on their work and creativity, even starting new shops amid this strange and challenging year, delivering books to people's homes by bike and sometimes getting marmalade in return. Or as we had the fun of doing recently, having a driveway bookshop at our house for Love Your Bookshop Day. Because it's never just about buying or selling books. It's about places where people can just be, they can meet and get inspired. How's that poo corner? What's happening in the book? The book arcade, the book arcade. Sam just asked, what is Cole's book arcade? It was a beautiful bookshop in Melbourne. Me already. And his icon that he had above the shop was a rainbow so you guys helped me do the chalk rainbows last week yes we did i did um blue yeah what else did you draw um ice cream (laughs) and some books yeah yeah i did one book you did one book yeah I can sing a rainbow, sing a rainbow, sing a rainbow too. It always starts with an idea of sharing as opposed to retail, don't you think, book selling in a way? It's not a classic retail experience in the way, you know, it's not a transaction at, of just money for a good. It's actually so much more book selling. I guess that's why it's has always been one of the most honourable trades. Mm. Do you think there's a particular type of person that becomes a bookseller? I think they're good people. <laughs> I think they're really good people. I think they're people that are compassionate and I think they're people that are searching for answers at all time. What about you? Do you think there is? Um, we're all a bit odd, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> We're a bit kooky. We're a bit kooky. <laughs> yeah, I guess that insatiable curiosity for life and ideas and that desire to share it with others, um, that's what keeps me going.
Today, I think we as booksellers and story lovers share the same hope for sharing the love of books and connectedness that E.W. Cole spread over a hundred years ago. And as we saw in part one, just as Cole was a master marketer and storyteller about his own shop and his messages of hope for humanity, the storytellers that have come after him have brought new life to his fantastical vision, mixing fact and fiction, and as Erin McCuskey puts it, creating new human truths and various perspectives that maybe bring the past and present a little closer as we dream up our future. Yeah, it's interesting thinking about what resonates for people today still about his character. What do you think it is that's so enduring? Well, I think his optimism is something, well, I think it's something we could all use right now, that's for sure. Um, But yeah, his optimism and idealism is, I think it's quite attractive It sort of speaks to this sense that there is uh, a better world out there, a better way that we can be living and that we we can actually help create that, that we're not powerless, that our actions matter. So I think he always acted in a way where he, he believed he could make a difference. He didn't seem to lose hope easily. Uh, and he definitely saw some tough times. He saw the 1890s depression and um, he lost a child. He definitely endured hardship, but maintained a real sense of great excitement and possibility for the world. Um, I guess that's why it's called Utopian Man, that sense of a utopia being always just within reach, um, something that we can aim for. And yeah, I think there's something endearing and attractive uh, about that sort of vision. Thanks so much for listening. This completes our first episode of Gather with Minerva's Books and Ideas, produced by me, Amy Silamanis, with sound engineering and general audio mastery by the amazing Dave Byrne. And this first episode is proudly supported by the Australian Government's Regional Arts Fund, provided through Regional Arts Australia, administered in Victoria by Regional Arts Victoria. Thanks to all our guests, and go and check out their work. Rex Hardware, Erin McCuskey, Christine Crawshaw at Sothis Books and Sartorial, and Chris Gordon at Readings in Melbourne. More info and about how you can support the show is at minervasbooks.com slash gather. Music featured in this episode is by Ellen Sorensen, and we heard clips from Adam Simmons' Creative Music Ensemble and the Carlo Onzo Trio. Keep making art. It's what makes it all worthwhile. Our next episode will be exploring travel and the challenges of this at this time. And our indie book feature will be with Crave Books in Tasmania, just across the way. See you then. We go in the Winnebago, we think, hire one of those, and then bring it back across the strait. And by the time we get back, the whole top of it's filled up with books.